Hello and welcome to Warwick's Classics and Discussion podcast. The European Renaissance is one of those periods in history when everything seemed possible. The rediscovery of Greek texts led to a rebirth of literature and learning. Scholars across Europe and beyond formed a republic of letters communicating across country and creed in a common language, Latin. Moreover, in this shared intellectual space, the arts and sciences flourished in extraordinary ways. It was the time when Plato rivaled Aristotle, when logic triumphed, when the light of reason pushed away the obscurantist clouds of a bygone age, as a Renaissance writer might have put it. The Renaissance also witnessed a great concern with the occult. Angels and demons, magic and mysteries were part and parcel of this enlightened age. And yet, the Renaissance has now largely become a lost continent. The thousands and thousands of texts written in Latin and immortalized through the new inventions of printing now lie largely unread and unstudied. For few are those who have enough Latin to peruse them. But what were the intellectual and political forces which made this age of rediscovery and progress possible? Who were the scholars who brought Greek thought to Italy and the rest of Western Europe? And how did Platonic philosophy pave the way for numerology, demonology and mysticism? With me to discuss the age of European rebirth are two of my colleagues at Warwick, Peter Mack of the English department and Maud van Halen of both Italian and Classics. Um, Peter, let me start uh, with you. Uh, the Renaissance was a time uh, which uh, kind of, uh, for me, is suspended between two major events. Uh, one is the fall of uh, Constantinople in 1453, um, when uh, you know, like the Turks uh, took uh, the Greek city and a lot of Greeks came into Italy. And the other event is uh, the discovery of the, the Americas, but also the expulsion of the Jews and Muslims uh, from um, from uh, from Spain in uh, 1492, which also you know, led to a major upheaval. So uh, between these two events, uh, what happened in the Renaissance? Why is it an important uh, period? Well, um, I, I, I think um, in a way the, the two events that you mention are, are very important and very interesting, but they compress the period of the Renaissance too much. Um, I, th I think that Maud and I would want to start um, not much later than 1350, and we probably would not want to end until the early 17th century. But within that, I think we would say the uh, Renaissance was a time of tremendous cultural achievement. You know, if we go to the National Gallery, um, most of the most interesting paintings on the walls were done in those uh, 250 years uh, or so. It's a period of extraordinary literature. And also, I think some of the things we'll be talking about today, it's a period of rebirth in terms of ideas, especially about ideas about how you should live practically, um, ideas about how to behave in the world. And as you indicated, it's also the period of Europe's encounter with this, with this whole new series of civilizations that no one in the ancient world had ever heard of. And for many people in the Renaissance, it was a sort of shock that suddenly they were going to have to live in territory that the, the ancients whom they revered had not really uh, plotted out for them in any way. But the word Renaissance means rebirth, and the people of the Renaissance were very conscious of, of a rebirth, uh, partly of culture, but more particularly a rebirth of learning. 
And that rebirth of learning was founded on the study of the classics, of ancient literature and especially ancient philosophy. But politically, for instance, uh, is it uh, true to say, if you say the Renaissance goes from 1350 to um, um, the late... Um, no, early 17th century. Early 17th century, okay. So, I mean, this was a, p a period of massive political turmoil as well, was it not? Uh, Oh, absolutely. And, and I suppose what we could say is we have so many different models going on during the period that we do have, in effect, small city-states, uh, like the state of Urbino, or on a larger scale, like the state of Venice. But we also have huge empires being carved out, the way that France is consolidated into a single country. Um, so that, uh, that it's, it's a period where there are many different political models going on. The beginning of the Dutch overseas empire, the, the, the high point, I suppose, of the Spanish empire. Mm. But we'll probably focus mostly on the Italian Renaissance. And in Italy, I believe, there was a greater multiplicity of political power. So you have these city-states, is that right? And they rival with each other. They try to attract the best minds. So is that a fair description? It is a fair description, yes. City-states are not the only system you've got. You've, you've got quite large territorial units. You've got the papal states, of course, with a kind of European uh, basis of power. But yes, a range of political systems. And that may have been a part of the reason for the cultural richness of the period, that you have very independent-minded princes who are commissioning great works of art by which to be remembered. But on the other hand, you have democratic, quasi-democratic quarrels going on within much smaller political mm. units. Um, Maud, let me come to you and let, let's talk a bit about the transmission of texts. Uh, I mean, I mentioned these two events, uh, and especially like the fall of Constantinople, led to many Greek texts uh, or even Greek emigres coming to Italy in the, or during the 15th century. So what's new? What happens? What new texts are discovered at this time? Yes, you mentioned the fall of Constantinople, which probably intensified a movement of exchange, cultural exchange between Greeks, Greek immigrants and Italy. But in fact, another major event took place before that, which is the 1439 Council of the Union, which was set up... What's that? It was set up by the East Church, Eastern Church and the West Church. The Eastern Church was trying to get political support from the Western Church and they set up this sort of council in Florence and Pisa. And although the outcome of this council was not really positive politically and led ultimately to the fall of Constantinople, the, it was the occasion for a lot of Greek intellectuals to come into Florence, and one of them is, of course, Bessarion, but also... Who's that? Bessarion was a Greek um, philosopher who became the cardinal in Venice, and he had a very large collection of ancient texts that he finally bequeathed to Venice, and which now form... The, the core of the um, San Marco Library in Venice. So basically what you're saying is that uh, we have the Eastern, the Byzantine Empire, there has been a schism in the church during the Middle Ages, uh, you have the East and the West, they are kind of at loggerheads, uh, but uh, the Byzantines find themselves you know, like under a lot of pressure from the Ottoman Turks, uh, so they say, oh, let's have a union council, let's, uh, in 1439, they go to the West in order to more or less beg for help. And one of the guys who's going is this uh, Bessarion. But also another person who is George Gemistus Pletho. 
1439, Pletho gives a lecture into, in Latin to an Italian audience. He's Greek, but he knows that the Italian audience is not going to understand him. So he consciously translates it into Latin so that they can understand. And he, the lecture is about the difference between two fundamental philosophers, Plato and Aristotle, and he's demonstrating that uh, Plato is superior to uh, Aristotle. And this is quite important at the time, given that Aristotle was the authority, the philosopher par excellence in the Middle Ages. And Pletho, who has access to texts that at the time were not available to a Western audience, is bringing in new arguments to these people, and it triggered what is called the Plato-Aristotle controversy, whereby people enter into debates and discussions about which of the two philosophers, whom of the two philosophers, is the best. Yes. I mean, we have this uh, wonderful painting by Raphael, obviously, the School of Athens, and um, if I remember it correctly, Plato looks up to the sky, and Aristotle... Mm -hmm or points up to the sky, I'm sorry, and Aristotle points down to the earth, and often this is seen as, uh, you know, you have Plato, the philosopher who believes in the world of ideas, the ideas have more reality than the things down on earth, whereas Aristotle, I mean, to put it very coarsely, kind of things that you should induce, you should look at things here, you know, have categories to describe them, and then, you know, like a kind of build uh, on this uh, empirical evidence. I mean, this is obviously, more complicated than that, that, but this is like a these two philosopher uh, philosophies are at loggerheads, and what you're saying is that uh, because these people, Bessarion and Pletho, come in with all these texts in their in their bags, uh, um, all of a sudden, um, you know, this Platonic position, which was not the dominant one, became uh, you know like more attractive, and people read new texts. Is that right? Uh, yes, and it's also helped by the fact that with the immigration of all these Greek scholars into Italy, um, there, there is a conscious, conscious attempt by the, the Italian scholars to um, have tuition in Greek. So they, they want to learn Greek. They, they want to learn Greek and they want also these scholars to translate Greek texts into Latin. So there is a movement of translation which is, you know, important. very important and is really um, intensifying this, this revival and rebirth of antiquity. So one area, obviously, of philosophy is logic, uh, Peter. And as I understand it, uh, during the uh, Middle Ages, Aristotle dominated the debates about logic. And then uh, in the Renaissance, with this influx of these new texts, something new happens. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, that is, that is correct broadly. Um, the, the Aristotle dominated the whole university syllabus in, 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 in the Middle Ages. And it, it's worth saying, first of all, that people in the Renaissance, to some extent, looked down on medieval learning in unjustifiable ways. That there are extraordinary uh, works of philosophy, especially of logic, actually, that are um, composed in, in, the, in the Middle Ages. But, but yes, Arist Aristotle dominated the university syllabus, and Aristotelian logic was the subject sometimes for as much as uh, two years of the four-year um, Bachelor of Arts degree would be devoted um, to logic. But instead of simply studying the text of Aristotle, uh, they developed 
um, sort of Who's something uh, the, the students and the masters, instead of simply studying the texts of Aristotle, um, they developed new subspecialities, particularly in the areas of, of semantics and, and, and of developing um, new kinds of logic. And some of these That's fields, happening during the, uh, the Middle Ages. The late right? Middle Ages. And some of these writers actually were rediscovered by, by linguists and logicians in the, in the 20th century. And, and for a while, uh, a great way to get um, research grants in medieval logic was to claim that medieval logic was kind of an anticipation of, of the logic that, that came later. And unfortunately, the project didn't work out uh, quite like that um, at the end. But some very colourful characters uh, had an interesting time in, in, in that way. But what happened, I think, in the Renaissance was, uh, first of all, th there was less concentration on the new texts, the texts of the 14th and 15th century, and more sense of... Do you mean by the new texts? Well, sorry, I, I mean the, 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 the new parts of logic which had been developed by medieval oh, okay. thinkers. And there was a sense of going back to the texts of Aristotle himself and, of course, of, of other ancient um, writers. So Aristotle's texts were retranslated, but most particularly because there was a sense of learning about antiquity in the round, looking at buildings and literature as well as looking at, um, at logic texts. There was a sense of what we've got to do with logic is find out what it's useful for. In other words, instead of developing theorems about what exactly does it mean when you say um, uh, the word begins or the big word ends, you're trying to say, how can we use logical techniques to make convincing arguments? There was a sense of trying to put logic back to use as something that, that went alongside literature, for example, so that we got, um, later in the 15th century, analyses of Virgil's Aeneid, according to the arguments, or of speeches by Cicero, so that logic was being turned back from being, as it were, an independent theoretical study, almost like a branch of mathematics, to being something that needs to be taught in the sense of, of, of actual communication, and, and usefulness yes. in the present day. And of but, course, uh, things uh, were lost as well as gained in, in, in that process. But, uh, can I just ask you, so Plato, does Plato play a role in this uh, you know, like a rediscovery or reshaping of logic during the Renaissance? Um, in logic itself, a, a rather small role. But one of the things that the Renaissance learns is that there's this whole range of ancient philosophers. And instead of simply saying, if it's in Aristotle, it must be true, mm -hmm. there's a sense of going back behind Aristotle mm -hmm. and seeing that there could be other positions that, that were upheld. And in a sense, the, 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 the popularity of, of, of Plato and an interest in Plato helped in this idea of maybe uh, bringing Aristotle a little bit down to size. Mm -hmm. However, as soon as I've said that, I have to say that actually within logic, it wasn't a question of getting rid of Aristotle altogether. Even the people who did their best to reform Aristotelian logic ended up basing their work on, on Aristotle's principles. But they were trying to, as it were, rethink their classical heritage yeah. in terms of usefulness in the present, mm -hmm. rather than simply saying, here's a starting point, let's develop our own theorems. They were saying, um, let's interrogate these texts. What's valuable in them? How can we build on what's valuable and leave aside what's arcane? Yeah, one thing, when you talk about humanism, which was obviously uh, en vogue uh, during the Renaissance, uh, is uh, this uh, emphasis on the individual and maybe also on individual ethics. And as I understand it, uh, the great ethics, like the Nicomachean ethics, for instance, they were more or less replaced by 
looking back, uh, for instance, at uh, Plato, at the example of Socrates, maybe also at Stoicism, people like Seneca. Uh, so is, is, is this uh, part of uh, what's happening during the Renaissance? So? I, I think you have many different currents, but it would certainly be true to say that there is a current in Renaissance writing of what we might call a more informal approach to ethics. And so, for example, if we, if we look at um, the essays of Montaigne, mm -hmm. um, there are points in the essays of Montaigne where uh, we Who's find... A French writer. A, a French writer of, of essays. Mm -hmm. um, he's, he's dying in 1592. Mm -hmm. um, his, his works come out between 1580 and 1595. Mm -hmm. um, but he would be someone who, was, who would be taking axioms of Seneca and... Um, asking himself how appropriate they were, um, providing stories that uh, fulfilled Seneca's ideas, but also thinking of, of counterexamples. And, and for him, and especially, the figure of Socrates yeah. was, was, was the most important. That he sort of moves from admiring Seneca and the kind of heroism and the kind of detachment which, which Seneca looks for, to a kind of idea of Socrates, whom he thinks of Socrates as the philosopher of ordinary life. The man who would, would happily play with the children as, as much as interrogate the, the, the heights of, of wisdom. He saw Socrates as someone who embodied um, uh, practical wisdom uh, in, 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 in a way. So, so yes, there is that sense of, 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 as you've suggested, of new models coming out um, in, in the Renaissance. Yeah, and one... Oh, sorry, sorry more One thing. important aspect, I think, that should not be over, um, overlooked is that the audience of these new movement changes that the university, you know, philosophy within the confines of the universities remain very active, but at the same time, a lot of what we now call the humanists are actually um, addressing their inquiries and their treaties and their works to a new audience of people who are not necessarily going to university they are so businessmen, they are politicians. So that's what we call the Republic of Letters. Uh, yes, yes. I mean, kind of everybody who's, uh, who's a cultured uh, guy who went to school, yes, who and learned they, his Latin, uh, kind yeah, of takes they, part in the discourse. And they about commission some prominent uh, politicians, commission some works to be translated or commented upon because they contain some advice, political mm. advice, or so you some think ideas. Of Machiavelli here. Or yeah, also Salutati, before that, that so? Coluccio Salutati was uh, the first chancellor of Florence who was instrumental in bringing in a lot of translators, Greek, mm. translate, Greek scholars to translate mm. um, uh, Greek words, works into Latin. And clearly the agenda was to find some you know, mm. new ideas about politics and how to... Uh, mm. Yes. A more practical use of this, this text rather than something very theoretical within the university. I see. I mean, obviously, we've talked about logic, we've talked about ethics, about political ethics, uh, and all these things they sound very rational, and the Renaissance often is portrayed at this time when people have uh, this thing. I mean, it's beauty and truth. Uh, that's all you need to know. But in fact, obviously, um, there's also Neoplatonism, which uh, sometimes sounds pretty weird to a modern audience with the magic and spells and occult properties. 
And as I understand it, a lot of philosophers during the Renaissance uh, spent a lot of time you know, like looking into these hidden properties, into angels and demons, into you know, like lost symbols, I don't know what. Uh, is that true, Mode? Um, it's partly true and partly a bit exaggerated. Oh. Um, but um, I would say that, to start with, let me define what Neoplatonism is, because it's, you know, not everybody knows what it is. Plato was a philosopher who, after his death, was the object of commentaries by some people who called themselves his disciples. And they gave an interpretation of Plato's text that was so far away from the actual text of Plato that they sort of developed a, what is now seen as a new philosophical So you're talk, thinking here about Plotinus, Porphyry, people in the and Proclus, yeah, so who, the, who were well, contemporary of some Christian writers. So basically we are talking here the 2nd, 3rd, mostly 3rd, 4th, 5th century AD. Yes, absolutely. And um, <clears throat> so these, these, um, these philosophers wrote a lot of commentaries on Plato. And what happened in the Renaissance is that in some way, although there was uh, an attempt to go back to the original of Plato and translate all Platon texts into Latin, a lot of these texts came also were transmitted through the prism of Neoplatonism because at the same time as they were translating Plato, they were also translating the works of the Neoplatonists, who had themselves And so, so if we take, take somebody like Jamblichus, um, I mean, he's a very weird guy, right? I mean, like, he believes the magical property in numerology. Absolutely. So, and, and this, was, uh, this was really something people loved. In the what is, what is important is that these Neoplatonic philosophers had believed in a cult, they had developed a sort of cult, two sorts demons and what we now call angels, intermediary beings. Mm -hmm. And by using philosophy and religion together, they could actually um, use philosophy as a means to elevate the soul and attain the reach the divine, etc. And they were using all sorts of things that we would now call magical. They were using Spells. music. Spells, right? Yes. I mean, they, they had spells. Invocations as well, mm. singing. All that was extremely important. And it had been actually condemned and rejected by Augustine and... St. Augustine. St. Augustine in the 4th century. And it's only with the rediscovery of these texts in the Renaissance by a very important philosopher called Marsilio Ficino in, at the end of the 15th century, that suddenly um, all the, the, these descriptions of cult and religious ways of elevating your soul through invocation, singing, etc., use of talismans and images, that all these texts become very prominent. And, and that's what uh, Yeats, uh, Frant uh, Francis Yeats, calls the Rosicrucian Enlightenment, is that right? Uh, not really, because Francis Yeats is um, interpreting this, this uh, revived interest in magic um, as fundamentally based upon a series of other magical texts or weird texts called mm. hermetic texts. 
Um, and although her, her research is very important because she, she, she um, underlined uh, the importance of this movement, I think that she might have um, exaggerated the importance of um, hermeticism. And I must also add that Francis Yates' paradigm was actually also developed by uh, Donald Walker. So sorry, um, so we're having some... Frances Yates is this woman who dies in 1980 who was very important at the Warburg Institute. And there's a whole paradigm of Renaissance studies. But in fact, the, the oh. thing, what I, my point was more that she exaggerated the importance of hermeticism, which is mm. also this sort of occult philosophy, without actually um, underlying the importance of Neoplatonism. So what you're saying is hermeticism like text attributed to her mistress Megastas, uh, um, um, texts you know, like on alchemy, on occult stone books, and all these things, uh, which were around uh, from late antiquity throughout the Middle Ages and in the Renaissance. These texts, kind of, which talk about uh, stones and occult properties and so on and so forth, um, they were not as important for the revival of an interest in magic. Let me just finish this thought. Uh, as uh, Neoplatonism and uh, these commentaries like Jamblichus, uh, is that right? Uh, yes, except that Hermetism, these texts were also translated at the request of Cosimo mm. de' Medici mm. in uh, 1463 by the same Ficino. And Hermes, as this sort of magician priest, is extremely important, for example, in the imagery, in, in the visual representation. If you go to Siena in the cathedral, the first thing you see is um, a series of uh, the pavement depicting biblical prophets together with this sort of ancient exotic Egyptian uh, magician. Because how, how is it supposed to come to from come Egypt? From Egypt and Egypt is mm. with Persia one of these faraway places where exotic and magical things are going on. And so, <laughs> but these things, I mean, Hermeticism, Neoplatonism. This occult sciences, they were also part of the Renaissance. It wasn't just philosophy, it wasn't just ethics, uh, it wasn't just you know, like nice literature. It is really a very complex phenomenon. And um, this brings me to, to the point, uh, to our last point maybe. Why should classicists engage with, uh, with the Renaissance? And why, is it, uh, did, you know, like, why is it fun studying the Renaissance? And how can it be done here at Warwick? Maybe you can say something about this, uh, Peter? Well, um the first reason why we want classicists to become involved in the study of the Renaissance is that we need them. Um, in order to be a good student of the Renaissance, really, you need classical languages and also a certain knowledge of, of, of medieval um, occurrences. But more particularly, I suppose I would say that in the classical world, um, there are, there are a, a relatively restricted number of texts um, most of which have now um, been subjected to study for decades, if not for hundreds of years. Um, or millennia, think of yeah, Homer. Yeah. In, in the Renaissance, um, there are many texts um, which um, respond to these classical texts, uh, many texts written in Latin, some in Greek, um, but which have scarcely been studied um, in the last 300 years. So um, we want to appeal to, to young classicists to say, um, of course, work on Horace some more, work on Homer some more, but also come and do some pioneer work um, with us. For example, in my field, I, I'm a specialist in the history of rhetoric. And in rhetoric, there are about 30 classical texts 
that really matter. And, and among them, the fundamental texts of the whole subject. But in the Renaissance, there are something like 2,000 texts, um, some of which uh, none of us have been able to study properly yet. So there's a, there's a whole new area. Lots of material out there. Which... Uh, and you know, there are exciting and interesting ideas. Some of them we haven't even begun to explore yet. Mm. So, so it's a field where, um, where young classicists could really um, give us a lot of help and, and, and make a large difference to, to what we know about this fascinating period of European history. And would I believe that here uh, in the Italian department uh, uh, we also have uh, a program, an MA in Renaissance Studies, is that right? Uh, yes, it's, uh, it's, it's organized by the Center for the Study of the Renaissance and it is um, actually providing some tuition in Latin and in methodological techniques to approach Renaissance texts because of course it's, it's different, the way you approach a Renaissance text is different from the way you, you approach a classical text. And um, yes, we have a lot of um, lectures and seminars about... Uh, All things Renaissance, yes. Uh, yes. And you yourself have an interest in Neoplatonism and uh, I believe also in demonology. Yes, absolutely, because the rediscovery of these hermetic and occult texts and Neoplatonic texts also lead to, of course, a fundamental tension between the attraction of these texts and Christianity. And, um, you know, in this context, I study the revival, the reception of demonology in a Christian era and how, you know, uh, people negotiated the tensions between orthodoxy and something that was sometimes uh, perceived as heretical. Yes, of course, I mean, if you pray to Hermes, I mean, if Hermes even makes it, makes it into a church, you know, like, they must have been pretty broad-minded. So, Peter Mack, Mood van Halen, thank you very much for your time.